The Bike Fit Podcast is brought to you by Bike Fitting, the best possible investment in cycling enjoyment and longevity. When you put force down onto the pedal, cranks aren't going to bend. So if you're putting force down to the pedal and you could have the biggest quads in, in, you know, in, in the cycling community, if your pelvis is not sta- stable, when you put force down into the pedal with your big strong legs, your pelvis is just going to rock out of the way. And that's a, a power leak, uh, you know, an, an instability, and there's a total, you know, shift of the, the up the kinetic chain. Welcome to the Bike Fit Podcast. I'm your host, Damon Wyatt, Operations Manager here at Bike Fit, and today we are going to geek out on all things related to the pelvis with functional movement specialist, coach, and bike fitter Greg Choate. He is the CEO of Santa Sports Science in Las Vegas, Nevada, and is not only an accomplished fitter who's been honing his craft for the last 20 years, he's coached for 30 years and raced extensively for 40. Due to his training and functional movement, he's a specialist who focuses intently on the nuances of the body as a significant portion of bike fitting. Greg also works with an array of clients in numerous sports that guide his practice Prepare your mind for an intimate study of the pelvis. Episode 15 with Greg Choate drops now. Greg Choate, welcome to the Bike Fit Podcast. Thank you, Damon. Uh, pleasure to be here. I'm super, super uh, flattered that uh, I've been invited to come along because there's been some big names on this podcast, some guys who I really look up to, and um, I'm glad to be a part of it. No, you belong here. From our pre-conversation about the pelvis, this is going to be good. Uh, before we get there, uh, I'd love to hear about the history. Uh, how did you get into bike fitting? It's interesting. Bike fitting for me, uh, I guess like a lot of people, it, it stemmed from injury. Um, so I've been racing. I'm in my 50s. I started racing bikes when I was 11 years old. And, uh, you know, I got stuck on a bike and the, and the senior guys at the bike club, you know, they look at you and they go, yeah, put your saddle up, put your saddle down. And everything was great. And I raced, you know, did a lot of racing, road racing, mountain bike racing, stage racing, uh, was never, you know, good enough to go pro in Europe, but was good enough to be pretty good, uh, in New Zealand where I'm from. And then in 1999, I was moving house and I decided I'd pick up my washing machine and, uh, Move that and that uh, threw me back out, spent about a year off the bike and coming back uh, and actually not just off the bike, I couldn't walk. Uh, a lot of the time I'd have nerve issues and I'd be embarrassingly at the supermarket walking along, pushing my, uh, my cart and next thing my leg would give out and I'd be on a pile on the floor. And so I found an osteopath who was able to figure out what was going on with you know my dysfunction. And then when I got back on the bike, and literally when he figured it all out, six weeks later, I was back on the bike and racing. And uh, at that point, I was like, you know, I need to look a little bit deeper into this because I was asking questions about how I should be pos- positioned on the bike and what's the most efficient one. I, I didn't really like the answers I was getting. So that was back in 1999, and it's been a rabbit hole ever since. So what was the actual, what did you done to your back at that point? And what did the osteopath do? I'm just, I'm very interested. It was a nerve impingement and it was basically uh, coming out of the, the the sacral area, you know, the lower back where a lot of people tend to have trouble with the bike and the nerve would fire down my leg and basically come out through my kneecap. You know, that's what it felt like, like an electric shock going down my leg out through my kneecap. And it just didn't seem to, you know, it didn't matter what it was. I obviously couldn't be on the bike. 
and then walking you know was an issue and and the, but the interesting thing and i think this is probably what sent me down the pathway of wanting to understand human movement uh more intimately was and all the time i had off cycling i was doing a lot of kayaking so i could actually get in a kayak and race my flat water boat i was you know paddling k1s olympic style uh kayaks i was paddling white water i was on a swift water rescue team we were paddling you know big water all the time those people who know kayaking like class five water then because my pelvis was so locked into a boat if anybody's done any whitewater kayaking you know you are wedged into the boat and there's there's uh, hip braces on you and your knees are pressed against the boat and it's you know, you're like it's like getting into a, a figure skate or an ice or ice hockey skate you're squeezed into your boat so my pelvis didn't move and i think that's when it sort of triggered to me wow if my pelvis is stable the rest of my body seems seems to function really well. So literally I could kayak for days on end, you know, multi-day trips and, but I still couldn't ride a bike or, or still had problems walking. That's really interesting. So you were held in place, there was stability and with, without that stability, you were in total pain. Correct. Yeah. That seems like some foreshadowing to what we're about to do. So <laughs> when we, uh, when we first talked, you said a statement to me that stood out. It, it struck me. You said everything about position starts with the saddle. Can you dive into what you meant by that? Yeah. So where I came from, and, and it's in interestingly, you and I have had this discussion. Obviously, I, I do a lot of bike fit and a lot of people in the industry know me for bike fit. But I think one of the interesting things which has helped me be a better bike fitter is I don't just work with cyclists. I work with runners. I work with other sport athletes. You know, I've worked with you know, high-level mixed martial artists. I've worked with race car drivers. I've worked with high-level motocross guys. I've worked with runners. Um, you know, right now I work with one of the elite badminton players in the world. She's going to be the U.S. Olympian come Tokyo. So I understand movement as a whole, and I see a lot of similarities in other types of movement. I think human movement is what I say I describe as species-specific, we're all built in the same way, you know, 206 bones and the muscles are origined and inserted in the same places. So we have some baseline fundamentals of movement, which we all have to adhere to because of the environment we're in. Um, you know, gravity is acting on us all in the same way. And so that sort of became my baseline of, of how I was going to approach bike fitting. And, and it's been an evolving process, obviously, over the years. So my basis is once we get the pelvis stable then we have the ability to access a, a lot more of our functionality when the pelvis is not stable there's all sorts of limiting movement function which goes on throughout our body and you know one of the the jokes i make about you know how our pelvis works is if if bar stools were shaped like bike saddles we'd have way less drunks or way less alcoholics because you know you'd have a couple of drinks and you'd just fall off the bar stool but, you know, barstools are flat and they support you. And I think that's a big function of, of that cycling saddles miss is the function of actually supporting the saddle. And that sort of becomes a little bit tricky because, you know, in our industry, we've talked about, well, we're going to position the saddle and every manufacturer is sort of guilty of this, is we're going to position the saddle based on the dimensions of the ischial tuberosities or what we know as the sit bones. And actually in cycling, we don't sit on the sit bones, you know, unless you're riding along no hands and your pelvis is upright, 
when we're sitting on the bike, the pelvis is rotated to some degree and we're sitting on the pubic rambi, which is the, the, you know, the bony structure in front of the issue tuberosities. And, you know, those are, we sit on it in different positions. So there's this, you know, inherent issue with, I think, with the design of bicycle saddles, uh, which leads to, you know, instability of the pelvis for a lot of people. So the saddle itself is the issue, but also to mention what you said before, if that's the case, and if you're in an upright position, that is the point where saddles were actually measured and set up. That means if someone has won a race when they post up, that's the most comfortable time they are at the end of the ride. Yeah. Well, it's the most stable hour, I think, because, you know, unfortunately with human movement, when one thing moves, everything moves. So I wish it was as simple as saying, well, you just need to have a saddle, which is flat and stable and that'll support you. But there's a whole lot more going on, as we all know, you know, that the legs are, are leveraged off the pelvis below us and they have to function. And the torso is leveraged off the pelvis above us. And that has to function in all sorts of different ways. And I think across the pelvis, and encompassing the pelvis and the lumbar spine, so the lower part of the spine, um, that's the transducer. So that's the way we transfer power from our legs to our upper body or from our upper body to our lower body. And unfortunately, the pelvis and the lumbar spine aren't very good transducers. It's sort of a weak link. And that's where we can run into a lot of problems with you know positioning which puts the pelvis at a disadvantageous position or, or puts, you know, excess strain through that area. So if the saddle is the culprit, but you also said, obviously, there's other parts when it runs to the chain, the lumbar region of the spine. How do you remedy this? You know, what do you do to help someone get this stability considering saddles are not potentially designed properly in what you're saying? Yeah, I think, well, I think that there's certainly some saddles out there which are, in my opinion, designed better than others, which offer more stability. Uh, But from a foundational standpoint, my goal is to make the pelvis as stable as possible to make that the platform and then look for the areas the, the positions at which we can function most optim- optimally off that pelvis. Because, the, you know, the, you, as humans, we're infinitely adaptable. You know, we can, the great thing about, you know, I say this to people who come into my studio, no one's bored into my studio on a gurney. Everybody walks in, everybody rides their bike in. So at some level, they are 100% functional. And that's the nature of the human, you know, we, we are incredibly adaptable. And we see this across, you know, any weekend ride from a cafe anywhere in the world. And we see it in the professional peloton. There's, you know, you look at positions and you're just like, I have no idea how that person rides the bike. I don't, you know, one, you know, out on the local, the club ride and you're just like, wow, hey, you should come and see me. Or, you know, somebody says, you look you know, terrible on your bike or, or you, you're watching insert professional stage race here. And there's multiple positions in the professional peloton, which you look at and you go, that makes no sense to me. How did, how does that work? And it's because humans are adaptable. And I think certainly in the professional arena, um, they are professional in spite of everything else you know it's it's you know you put put fabian cancellara on a 500 hundred dollar huffy in a bad position he's probably still gonna beat everybody um and that's you know the nature of a lot of professionals they're they're, they're outliers but 
you know, that doesn't mean, you know, their position is wrong. It clearly works for them. Uh, but I think there's more avenues we can explore with, with you know, creating the stability of a position through the pelvis. You mentioned that pelvic stability uh, affects power transfer, right? So yes. when, we, when we talk about this professional, this adaptable person in the positions, which I'm sure most people have seen or many fitters even work with, um, so those guys, they're able to create or they have that stability and are able to do a power transfer regardless of the position or they're able to overcome that or just generally somehow they create better stability through their genetics? I think there's a little bit of both. I think when we talk about, you know, dysfunction, these, these at a professional level, they tend to be uh, what we describe as, you know, high level compensators. So they're very, they're able to compensate incredibly well to perform the task. And that's part of being a human being. You know, we are task driven and task driven is just about getting the job done. And that's both a good and a bad thing because being task driven, that a lot of the time becomes the mechanism of injury. So if we were really, really smart, um, you know, and there's a, you know, you, you're out riding your bike and there's a, you know, you've got a little bit of discomfort or something going on. You might be like, yeah, I really should go home now and, you know, rest this or seek some, you know, rehabilitation or whatever. But no, we, we can still pedal the bike. We keep going. And, and that certainly in cycling, because it's a high repetition sport, it's a chronic injury sport. We tend to just keep moving. I mean, if we were, you know, if our brain was really, really smart, when you bent over to pick up that box, was, which was a little bit too heavy and, you know, in a disadvantageous position, your brain would go, oh, I wouldn't do that if I was you. But it doesn't stop you. Just let you pick it up, and then you go. Oh, my back's put out. You know, hence me with a washing machine, and uh, seemed like a good idea at the time. But you know, my brain was really smart. Maybe I. Maybe it's me. Maybe I'm not just just not that smart. And and you know, it. My brain should have gone. Don't don't pick that up, dude. <laughs> <laughs> but but I think your point is good. I I've ridden with a lot of people who are say something along the lines of like, "Wow, oh, my knee's really hurting," and and we're riding. Right, it's not like my knee's really hurting. I'm telling you this over fries, and I haven't ridden it. Two weeks. <laughs> it's, it's. I'm riding right now, and oh man, I really wrecked my knee last week. Well, and you're riding, yeah. So maybe that's part of the issue. Yeah, we're just you know we're about getting the job done, and when we're, we're so good at it, you know, you like whatever it is, whether it's sport or whether it's you know. Yeah, there's a really interesting sort of a little digression here because I work with a lot of other types of athletes. There was a few years back, uh, I know, you know, and I can take, you know, the haters, just bring it on. I'm going to use the word CrossFit. Um, so <laughs> many years ago, they, you know, when CrossFit was in its, in its, not, I'll say it's infancy because, you know, CrossFit's really interesting. We just used to call that exercise, but now it has a nice name to it. <laughs> um, but, you know, CrossFit, and they took CrossFit and they introduced it into a population uh, at a military base of special operators. So, you know, special forces guys. And over the period of a year, they had a huge injury problem with these operators getting injured. And it's when you take a personality which is driven to get the task done and give them a, a exercise modality where there's a relatively high risk if you get it wrong, um, yeah, you're just going to get people who injure themselves. And I think that's you know partly with cycling as well. We just we can we can get the job done, but it's the potential you know downstream of 
what sort of injury might it cause you or what sort of, uh, you know, continued dysfunction it might cause you um, because, you know, that's that whole rationale of uh, a practice doesn't make perfect, practice makes permanent. So, you know, when we do something which is maybe not 100% correct, but we do it over and over again, it really just cements that movement pattern and we can dive into the, you know, the myelination of movement patterns um, within the body but you know that's the way it works so a lot of it's really funny a lot of people come to you you know have been writing for years you know i've been writing for years or whatever i've been doing massive mileage and i've never had a problem up until now well you know they how quickly can you fix me well a lot of the time it's quite difficult to fix that type of person because their motor patterns are so far ingrained that it's really hard to back them out of that because they have this you know this default position that they drop into it's like you know we talk about you know, um, sled tracks in the snow. Take a sled to the top of the hill and let it go and it'll put down some tracks. If you take the sled back to the top of the hill and let it go again, it's just going to drop into those same tracks. Yeah, I had a I had a physical therapist mention to me that when the person, that's a good example, gets to that point of pain, it's mm-hmm. already, the, the warning signs have happened way before that. Like they've reached oh, yeah. this point now where they've, they've, they've created damage but they had multiple sands prior to that, and now they're coming in saying, "Oh, maybe I should do something about this." Too. That's that's why you know middle-aged cyclists and triathletes, you know, live on vitamin I. You know, vitamin I is the ibuprofen is just a marvelous thing. <laughs> you know, it's the it's the equivalent of you know the smoke detector going off in your house and you reaching up and taking the batteries out. Doesn't mean there's no smoke anymore. Or there's not a fire in the back room, but that annoying noise is gone. That's incredible comparison. That's a, that's a really really good comparison. <laughs> yeah, and and so that and it, once again it becomes a mechanism mechanism of injury. And uh, but I think there's you know there's plenty of ways we can get around that. I think you know assess no know, knowing if we can get the pelvis stable, if we can get somebody and the and but the pelvic stability is there's just so many things played into that. But for me, that's my baseline. That's what I'm looking for. Let me come back to this, but I want to digress with you a little bit. Due to vitamin I, human nature, <laughs> uh, avoidance of injury, all the things we just talked about, do you feel that has a strong impact on the profession of bike fitting? Yeah, I think, you know, we're willing to... It's funny, in any bike fitter or pretty much, you know, any cyclist out there, a number of people I've over the years I've had, you know, I've been fitting for 20 years and people come in and they're like, well, you know, it's meant to hurt, right? I'm like, no, not really. No, it's not meant to hurt. I mean, there's a big difference between pain and discomfort. And, and we talk about, you know, as, a, as I'm, you know, I'm a coach as well. So I'm always working with different types of athletes. And we talk about what makes a great athlete is, you know, what makes a great athlete is someone who's gets really comfortable with being uncomfortable. And, and I think that's a, that's a lot of cycling, you know, people are like, well, you know, it's meant to hurt. So I'm just going to keep pushing through because it's, it's cycling. It's not meant to be comfortable. Yeah. I, I mean, and it's, it's determining, you know, what that is for different people. And for some people, it's like, you know, oh, I'm starting to feel a burn in my legs. And, and so, you know, when my heart's starting to jump out of my chest, I'm going to stop. I'm going to back off. Well, there's other people who just like, yeah, it's just my heart wanting to jump out of my chest. And that's just a buildup of, you know, acidosis in my muscles. And it's not going to kill me. So let's just keep going. And you just get comfortable living in that, in that zone of like being uncomfortable. 
Do you see that too from the, you know, what they would call, I'm using air quotes right now, the, the type A athlete, like the person that works their brains out, follows their schedule. And if they experience discomfort, uh, differentiating from like a muscular discomfort versus a position discomfort, they're thinking, well, if I take time off, I'm going to lose fitness. Yeah, absolutely. Without question. Yeah. We, you know, there's this, we are just, you know, one of the things that's you know, cycling attracts this for sure. Uh, triathlon attracts it, but you know, I've seen the same thing in tennis. I've seen the same thing in running, you know, I've seen the same thing in a lot of other sports. It's just the nature of being competitive and the nature of, and yeah, we're digressing a little bit, but you know, cycling, it's cheaper than getting a therapist, <laughs> you know, and, and arguably, you know, more effective for some people because of its accessibility, you know? So it, it, it becomes part of our, you know, our life. And, you know, it's, um, has, has both, you know, that can be both beneficial and non-beneficial. I agree with that fundamentally, but my wallet disagrees from the cycling habit <laughs> over the last five years. Exactly. Just generally, I can yeah. tell you right now from receipts. Yeah. So let me go back. Let's go back to the pelvis because that's where we're mm-hmm. going to go. So yep. for the cyclist, you establishing pelvic stability, what is mm-hmm. your process to establishing that? If the saddle isn't perfect, but you're still working with the body, what do you do? So the the process for me and, and I, I have a workflow, and, and you know, I'm, I'm really happy to to sort of tell everybody my workflow. This is how I do a bike fit. You'll come in for a bike fit for me, and I'll take all the measurements off your bike because I want to know exactly where your bike is right now. And you're coming in for you know what I call a fundamental fit, which is road and, and mountain bike, and you're going to spend about two and a half hours with me, and about an hour and 45 minutes of that is not going to be on your bike. Because I need to look at how your body moves because, you know, guys in the bike industry know me. I'm famous for saying, you know, it's not about the bike. It's about the body. How you move off the bike is going to dictate how you move on the bike. So, you know, I do a lot of screening of how how you move and we look at foot function and a lot of other things. So by the time I get to actually putting you on the bike, I already know how you're going to move. I already know what I'm going to see. And so my job, once I put you on the bike, is to just sort of clean that up as much as we can because also when somebody comes in for a bike fit and they're not having any problems, right? They're 100% functional when they walked in the door because uh, they're not on a gurney. No one's going to listen to me if I go, hey, you've got this dysfunction. You should really spend some time off the bike. You know, I'm going to go out of business real quick. So my job is, and we've spoken in the industry about, you know, accommodative fitting. And I think, you know, our job is to accommodate a perfectly symmetrical device because all bicycles are perfectly symmetrical. The place we put our hands are equally distant from the center line. The place we put our feet are, you know, I'm doing air quotes as well, equally distant from, from the center line. But, we, you know, we have lateral shift and, oh, you can get different length axles. Yeah, we know all that. But essentially, pretty, you know, it's symmetrical. And I've yet to find someone who's symmetrical. So I'm trying to put something which is asymmetrical onto a symmetrical device. And this is where the problem occurs. You know, your hands are on the are locked in position and your feet are locked in position. So that leaves the space between those contact points for the asymmetry to manifest itself. So, you know, for me, it's going through that whole process of figuring out like, what is your level of dysfunction from a movement standpoint? And what are we going to be able to achieve on the bike? Like one of the things I'll do with pelvic, 
you know, when I'm looking at someone's pelvis is can they, you know, what we call anterior posterior rotate the pelvis? Can they roll it forward? Can they roll it backwards? Because typically, you know, in modern society, because we live the sedentary lifestyle of sitting at desks and driving cars, uh, uh, our, our pelvises all tend to be in, a, in an anterior rotation. And so for some people, they can't even get out of that anterior rotation. They can't even show me that. And, and when they're standing, they can rotate their pelvis backward, rotate their pelvis forward. So if you've got somebody like that, your starting point is way different than somebody who can rotate their pelvis back and forward naturally. So we want to assess all that stuff off the bike. Um, you know, we'll look at how the, how the hip function works. You know, how does your, how does your leg come out of your hip? Have, are you, you know, is your, your internal external rotation of the, the, the femur, the big bone in the lower body where a hip comes in, it, you know, where is that? Is it more on one side, less on one side? Is it, is it, you know, are you excessively externally rotated? Are you, you know, what we call windswept where you've got both rotations, you know, one's going internal and the other one's going external from left to right. We want to assess all that stuff because that's going to impact you on the bike because it's going to set your you know, pelvic position. It's going to set your pelvic obliquity, the, the rotation of the pelvis. You know, um, So all that stuff, once we've looked at it off the bike, you know, I can then you know, use as, as what I need to accommodate on the bike. And the other thing which comes into that is, is do you actually have pelvic stability off the bike? And off the bike, we're talking about, you know, not not very big loads of you, you know, having to display pelvic stability to me. Um, and there's, you know, various different screening methods out there. I'm, I'm a big uh, functional movement guy, an FMS guy. I've trained under Grey Cook and, 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 you know, learned a lot from what they do. And that's, you know, purely just human movement. Um, but, you know, if, if you don't have pelvic stability – you know, we're going to have problems because when you put force down onto the pedal, cranks aren't going to bend. So if you're putting force down to the pedal and you could have the biggest quads and, and, you know, in, in the cycling community, if your pelvis is not sta stable, when you put force down into the pedal with your big, strong legs, your pelvis is just going to rock out of the way. And that's a, a power leak, uh, you know, an instability. And there's a total, you know, shift of the, the up the kinetic chain when, when that happens. So, you know, having that stable pelvis is integral to being able to put force through the pedal. So you'll find that, uh, you know, some people who have great pelvic stability, but don't have, say, hugely strong legs, that's the way they're able to produce a lot of force through the pedal because they're incredibly efficient at, you know, the force that they deliver through their leg, there is no leak back up at the pelvis. So it's inefficiency. So someone that, yeah. you know, let's say off the bike, or weight training program or whatever, you know, they can do incredible amounts of squats. They get on the bike, should be able to throw down watts for a period of time from training, and they are inefficient. They leak out wattage because of the instability in the pelvis? 100%. So, so it's like, you know, and it's, it, and the cycling with the exception of racing on the velodrome, with the exception of a, a, a few disciplines on the velodrome, cycling is an efficiency sport. And I, the, you know, Andy Kogan, who I totally respect and is, I've learned a lot from Andy and his, you know, research over the years, it, you know, Andy says it's, it's an aerobic sport, damn it. 
you know, it's it's there's just aerobic aerobic efficiency, mechanical efficiency. You know, unless you're doing, you know, track sprints. You know, unless you're you, you, unless you're Mister, you know, unless you're Mini Butch. You know, you're. It's all about <laughs> put, it's all about putting power on for extended periods of time. And it's really funny. That's why you you know you go out in a club ride, and there's tons of guys on a club ride in you know any city around the world. And it's all these little short efforts to the next traffic light, to the next road marker, to the to the city limits marker. But the really good guys are the guys who can keep power on for a long time. And that's about being efficient. Not just strong. No, I mean, I think that that's interesting because I'm, I'm not sure that that message is really running through the cycling community, right? Because we're, we're very much focused on this wattage situation. We're focused so much on now that everybody can have a power meter because it's affordable. We all want to use this. We want to test our wattage. We want to do a 20-minute test, right? And we want to see that increase. That's, that's our, you know, our baseline performance, or at least what I see on message boards and what's out there. But you're saying for a lot of people, they're unstable. And so there's, is that cap them at a certain amount they can get to, or they're really just not as efficient as they should be? Well, yeah, it caps them. And yeah, they're not as efficient as they should be. You know, when you get stable through the pelvis, the the ability, and interestingly, going back to an early statement, when one thing moves, everything moves, your stability through the pelvis, you know, you could be driven from your foot. You, you, you might have you know, massive medial arch collapse and when the foot becomes efficient and the ankle becomes, you know, we lose congruency in the ankle, so we lose alignment in the ankle, that's going to limit, you know, that's going to change the angles of the femur into the pelvis and that's going to change the way the pelvis interplays. There's just so many elements to, you know, p- positioning somebody on a bike and, and um you know, it's, it's, and unfortunately where we go back to the communities, the bike fitting communities problem is we haven't done a good job at communicating the nuances and the details and how complex fitting someone on a bike is to our consumers. Because, you know, it's, it's not that difficult to ride a bike. You get on it and you can ride it in a hideous position and you still sort of go down the road and it's pretty good. And But, you know, finding that place where you, you know, your whatever you call it, you know, in your groove, it's the zone, it's the, it's the, you know, the perfect place of, of where you have maximal efficiency. One, I don't think a lot of people find that and that's because it's not a one and done deal. You know, it's not like I'm going to go to a bike fitter, you know, I'm going to go to the most reputable bike fitter I know, and he's going to fix this in the, in the single session I have with him. You know, bike fits just a moving target. We're just constantly changing and, and assessing and, and, um, you know, if you want to get it right. And I think that's what, you know, every, and a lot of people think coming to a bike fitter as well, they're going to, the bike fitter told me, you know, he stood up on the pulpit with his tablets and he said, this is your position. You will follow this position. You know, we're really as a bike fitter is there more as a tour guide to a place that you don't really understand. You know, mm-hmm. you as the cyclist has come to this guy who's the bike fitter and he knows the city that you're in intimately. And he knows all the backs, you know, the back, alleys and the best places to get espresso and you know the best place to get your favorite your favorite snack you don't know those places because he's he's he you know, he, he but he knows this intimately and his job is to guide you and once he's sort of hit, headed you off in the right direction and got you in a in a in a good place 
you should be able to adjust your own bike fit at some level. Because I say this to my patients a lot. When you come in, I don't, I don't feel your pain. You know, it's totally, you know, my, my, my position's awesome. <laughs> I don't have issues on the bike. Um, but, you know, you've got to, I think people are maybe a little scared or maybe, you know, they don't want to offend the bike fitter, but you've, it's an exploration, man. You don't, nobody knows your body better than you do. But they do know the process. There's other people who know the process. They know that, you know, the the realm that you've got to work in, this, this you know, acting as a guide, acting as a tour guide to an environment that you're not, you know, intimately familiar with. Well, you know, I recently talked to John Cobb about that, and he was talking about this trust that has to be created, right? Like totally. You, the, the fitter is in this situation, and my understanding is, is one, you got to have trust so that you can have this dialogue, and two is it sounds like that explanation needs to happen more generally to cyclists because yeah, I've gotten many calls here about, well, but I had a fit seven years ago and I'm not saying this is everybody. I haven't done the polls on this, but they're concerned and they want solutions. They want to be out of pain. And usually the first thing I say is, you know, your position probably changed. Your body may have changed, right? So is that something we need to get out there more? Is that something the cycling community needs to get out there more that this is this, exploration as opposed to a finite i got it done i'm good oh yeah it's not a bike fit is not a finite yeah i have exactly i have a client who came and saw me eight years ago he is a leading surgeon he is a very very smart man and and he still believes that his position i gave him eight years ago is perfect for him and you're that good I, though that that's well all, that's uh, all yeah i'm like that's that's uh, you know I'm, I, I i i suffer from you know everybody's like really i'm, I'm am i a fraud um but it's that you know you 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 never really master it you're always it's always an exploration right and it's like coaches as a, as a as a coach you can never take credit for what your athlete does right it's like whatever you know i i was part of the I was part of the equation, sure, but I didn't go out there and do it. At the end of the day, the athlete has to go out there and do it. But yeah, this it's not a bike fit is not a finite set position. Yes, your your physical body may not change, although, you know, Mr. Happy Freeman will tell you, you know, it does change from morning to afternoon. We get shorter, right? You're the tallest you're ever going to be the moment you get out of bed because gravity hasn't acted on you for, you know, between six to eight hours. That's why, you know, people who in their thirties were six foot tall and their, in their seventies and eighties are, you know, five foot eight. It's gravity is constantly acting on us. And that is the constant, right? That's the constant for everybody. And I think it's one of the things that certainly bike fitters overlook a lot is gravity acts on me exactly the same way it acts on you. You know, it's a mass equation. So if my mass leveraging off my pelvis is, is less than you, well, chances are I can leverage out further with, you know, with a similar muscular, you know, enlistment. Um, but, you know, if, if I'm you know, 225 pounds, the, the ability for me to leverage that mass in my upper body and I'm all, you know, I'm yoked up, I'm all arms and chest and everything, the ability for me to leverage that weight out off my pelvis, that, that's, that's just a physics equation. That's really interesting. Let me, let me jump backwards since we're, we're kind of going around. This is, this is good. <laughs> it's okay. We can do this. Um, let me go back to saddles, which connects okay. to pelvic stability. So yep. l- let's say I think saddle selection is a very difficult 
piece for a cyclist. Uh, I talked about this a little bit on the show with Paul Swift a little bit earlier. And how does, in your opinion, how should a, a cyclist find a saddle? Like what's the best way to select one? Okay. So let me take a step back on that. Um, the issue with saddles, if you look at components to a bicycle in, in, the, in the cycling industry, saddles have the largest amount of variation for a single product across any component on a bicycle. We have, you know, handlebars. Yes, we can get different widths. We can get different reach. We can get different drop. We can get different profile. But we know those dimensions of those are pretty much set. Cranks, pretty much set. Wheels, consistent. Tires, whatever. But saddles, we don't have, and we can talk about those, right? This crank, this crank is a 165 mil crank, and I'm running a, you know, 104, you know, BCD on it, the bolt center diameter, and this is the chain rings have this many teeth on it. Well, saddles, we don't have a common language in which we describe saddles. So if you were to take a saddle and ask somebody and show somebody a saddle, I'm going to, hey, hey Damon, here's the saddle. What's this front part of the saddle called? And The nose, know, right? Correct. Yeah. You're going to say the nose. Unless that saddle's an ISM, because ISM will tell you if you have a discussion with them that they have a noseless saddle. I'm like, okay, so what do you call the front? Um, you know, what, what do what we do? They call the front. I, I'm not, I can't even remember what that discussion was, but it wasn't the nose because we sort of went round in circles on this. It's, no, our saddle doesn't have a nose. I'm like, okay, it's a noseless saddle, um, whatever the front is. So we have, you know, we, you can say, you know, what the this is the back of the saddle. We can probably all agree on this, and this is the rails of the saddle. Um, you know, um, but there's a lot of dimension within a saddle. You'll say, okay, the saddle is x millimeters long and all sorts of saddle manufacturers will say well this is our 158 and this is our 143 and this is our 135 but that saddle is measuring the widest part of the saddle well that widest part of the saddle occurs in completely different places relative to the sitting position on all manufacturers saddles we can't and as as a as a community what do we call that transition from the nose or the front of the saddle to the widest point of the saddle. What, what, how would you describe what that transition is called? You know, is that the throat of the saddle? Is it the waist of the saddle? And how quickly does that transition? Because we know that how that shape changes dramatically affects how and where you sit on that saddle. Also, if we look at the center line and we, we sort of go through the sagittal plane of the saddle, a center line of the saddle, and we took a bandsaw and sawed it in half, how do we describe that dimension from the center line as it curves off the center line of the saddle, you know, moving laterally, moving, you know, to left and right? Is, is that called the shoulders of the saddle or is it called the something else? Um, obviously, in what I do, I've just, you know, I've created my own language just so I can talk to myself, but and, and describe stuff. But you know, within the within the industry, we don't even have any description. We can, oh, well, this is the rails. I can tell you what the rails are, and but those dimensions really affect the way someone sits on a saddle. So you know, and when we and when we talk about humans, where oh, we just measure the issue of tuberosities. Well, you know, okay, how flat the saddle is, and how much shoulder it's got on it, and what happens in the waist is the waist transition fast or slow, um, you know, acute or, or shallow. 
you know, that's really going to affect the way you sit on the saddle. And I think you'll see, if people start to look at saddles, you'll see the saddles that have the slowest transition in those dimensions tend to be the saddle which seats, uh, suits the largest number of people because it creates a large sweet spot within a saddle that you can actually position somebody on. What do you mean by the slowest transition? Hit me with that again. Okay, so let's, let's say we've got the nose of the saddle and we're measuring how quickly the shape changes from the narrowest part of the saddle on the nose to the widest part of the saddle. So okay. if you've got a very slow transition between those two dimensions, the, the spot in which somebody can sit, there's quite a lot of wiggle room. It's the sweet spot is quite big, as I'd describe it. Likewise, if somebody's got a saddle, which if we've cut it through the middle, you know, this sagittal plane, there's a rail on each side, the, the transition off the center line, if that's a really acute drop, right, that curve is very, very mm -hmm. steep, that saddle is just going straight up your jacksy. You know, nobody's going to get comfortable on that, but it becomes a wedge. But, you know, saddles for some people, I don't know, for some people they might like that. But, you know, for some people a slower transition there allows them, you know, more seated area. And that does impact on, you know, the spacing. I'm not going to use this YouTube roster, the spacing of the pubic rambi and the angle of the pubic rambi. And I think if you look, and, and this you know, could create a firestorm on, on the interwebs, but I think if you look, the human population doesn't actually vary that much across those internal dimensions of the pelvis. But, you know, we can't measure them. We measure the issue of tuberosities because we can. It's an easy place to, to measure, right? But really, it doesn't have any impact on the choice of the saddle. You know, if you really want to get to know somebody, get your hands up in there and, and, and you know, feel their pubic rambo, right? Nobody's going to do that. You know, I, I usually have to buy somebody a couple of drinks before they let me do that. That's an so, intimate session. Right, exactly. That's yeah, like, that's yeah. like, but, but it's like, because we can't, the, that's the tricky thing about the pelvis as well. We can't see it. We don't know what's happening on the inside. We don't know what that spacing are, what that angle is. It's very difficult to measure. So we have to make assumptions. And, you know, as we know, making assumptions just makes an ass out of you and me. But is that, let me ask you this, to, to go into that piece a little further. Usually, I guess it depends on the position and the saddle. Mm -hmm. Are you actually even hitting any bone in there? Or are you hitting, like, tissue? Are you hitting sensitive tissue in that area? What is really creating the pressure there but well, all of the above i think the you know it's, it's the yeah definitely from the bone structural standpoint yeah the bones want to push out you know you want to it, your tissue wants to compress and people who have more tissue you know probably don't compress as much people who have less tissue probably compress more and you know i've certainly in the concept of this is a woman's saddle and this is a man's saddle and whatever i think over my years of bike fitting i've seen no correlation of you know whatever i've seen women on saddles which i can't ride i go man that's got to be uncomfortable and the client's like no this is really really comfortable and then guys you know on just saddles which i'd never put a guy on and it was great to see, I think, you know, a year ago, two years ago, you know, Ratul came out or specialized, came out and said, you know, we don't do gender specific product now. And that wasn't, you know, a politically correct statement. It was like, yeah, there's just such variation across the entire population. 
that there's no need to do gender specific. Um, you know, you need to just figure out what is the right saddle. I think we're more in some realities, we're more similar than we are different. Even across uh, sex differences. So, cause Absolutely. I've seen generally, like you just said, you just talked about, I've seen saddles very specific put out for women or men talking mm-hmm. about, uh, obviously we have different tissue there. We have different parts and that mm-hmm. certain saddles. And again, this is anecdotal. I hear this. This is not from a specialist point of view of, well, you know, some women just don't, or or many women, as it has been said, don't prefer a cutout. Want something that is a non-cutout, whereas men prefer a cutout. But you're saying it's really subjective. There's no yeah. trend there. Yeah, I mean, you take so so an example of you got a a, um, a female athlete with you know not good um, uh, pelvic floor stability, and she works in an office all day, wears high heels and has a massively anterior tilted pelvis. She's got shortening of the quadriceps, shortening of the anterior capsule tendons and and hip flexors. Um, Yeah, her pelvis is so far rotated forward, she's not really going to tolerate. And she's, let's say she's, you know, five foot three and weighs 110 pounds. Yeah, and and physically, you know, narrow hips, whatever. We, if you've got an anterior rotated pelvis with narrow hips, and there's going to be some inherent issues with trying to put her on certain types of saddles. You know, too wide is going to be too wide, too narrow is going to be too narrow, and you know, add add into that the anterior rotated pelvis, so it's already tilted forward, so she's already heading towards sitting on top on soft tissue. And she doesn't have good pelvic floor stability, so her pelvis is probably going to move around a lot. So you know, it, it becomes such a the you know, as I say, there's so much so much interplay going on with that. I think it becomes a an issue of you know the practitioner, the bike fitter, going having to be really you know do their homework before they go and slap somebody on a bike, because also you certainly in the woman's perspective, and I I, I say this, you know, with. You know, I, yeah, all respect for women because I think women are arguably far better athletes than men are. Um, just their ability to, to to you know endure discomfort, pain, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I think there's certainly this situation where if a woman's coming to a bike fitter, she's pretty much going to be led by the bike fitter more so than a, than a lot of guys who are you know cyclists. Because, you know, the guy, a guy has tended to be, you know, he's done all his research and by the time he's come to you, he's already going to tell you what's wrong with him and what saddle is going to suit him best, et cetera, et cetera. We, we, all, we all know clients like that. But certainly, you know, my experience with female clients, they're more willing, they're more open to a discussion with a fitter, but that can lead down to people, you know, saying, well, this is the right saddle for you. It's like, it's like the whole scenario of, you know, with the fit systems that are out there, you know, fitting by the numbers. Well, this is what the computer tells me. So, you know, this is what the general population data says that you should be in this position. And if, well, if, you know, it still doesn't feel comfortable. Well, it's, you know, that's the way you should be. You'll just need to get used to it or you'll just need to adapt. Isn't that the same with saddles, though? You know, we've I've talked about this a few times is this idea that we're trying to put people who are a certain way or a certain position, they fall into a category and you're great for the saddle. So if I can touch my toes, this is the saddle for me. But I've never sat on the saddle. I've never had an assessment. But my flexibility alone can be a factor to tell me what the right saddle is. Well, that's a that's a great example because that can lead you down the wrong path to straight away because why are you why can you touch your toes 
That's the you know, that's a better question. Why can you touch your toes? A lot of people can touch their toes because their pelvis is already rotated forward. So they actually don't have the actual flexibility coming out of their spine or their their hip, you know, they they have a, a an added advantage because their pelvis is already rotated forward. So they're already, you know, arguably closer to the ground. If you took, you know, their, uh, you know, ASIS is actually closer to the ground than someone whose pelvis is not rotated forward. So they, you know, you've had a little bit of an advantage there. And you see that a lot with women where they, you know, are incredibly, quote unquote, are incredibly flexible where their pelvis is already rotated forward and they're getting flexion out of their spine in all the wrong places. And so I don't think something like being able to touch your toes is a very good indicator of what type of saddle you should be able to, you know, to get on. But you did say that you, or earlier we're talking about someone should do an assessment to get an idea of 100%. the, yep. you know, what you could break it down to or what you can eliminate, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, if this isn't proprietary information, what kind of process do you use? Well, so we want to see, you know, from a physical exam where the pelvis is when they're standing and where the pelvis is when they're unweighted. So, you know, when they're in the supine position lying down. Um, and that'll give you an indication of where their where their normal is. Then, you know, what's the where are they from a from the what I call the anterior line tension. So, you know, are their are their quads tight? Are their hip flexors tight? So an interesting thing with cyclists, you know, or people in general, a lot of people will say, oh, I have, I have really tight hamstrings. What's yeah. that argument of, are your hamstrings really tight or are they just being pulled long because your quadriceps and your hip flexors have shortened so much? This brings us, you know, we're diving in deep here, but this is the, the concept of tensegrity where we know it in a bicycle wheel, right? Where the spoke on one side has enough tension on it. And if it's equal to the spoke on the other side, then the wheel stays true. If you loosen the spoke on one side, the wheel goes out of true. The same sort of principle can work with our body. We have a a load balancing scenario where if we shorten the front line, what we call the anterior line, that will actually pull the pelvis forward and that will put tension on the back line. So your symptom is tight hamstrings, but the cause is a shortening of the quadriceps and the hip flexors. So in that scenario, people are like, oh, I'm going to go and stretch my hamstrings because they're always tight. They're always tight. And they spend all this time stretching their hamstrings and they actually never get any better because what they're actually doing is just aggravating the symptom. They're not actually dealing with the cause of the problem, which is a shortening of their hip flexors and a shortening of their quadriceps. So what does that person do usually? I know we're digressing, but is it more of a strength training routine they have to do? No, we, well, uh, for, you know, from my standpoint, we want to just get soft tissue release and lengthening of the of the anterior line again, you know, get them back into some sort of neutral position of their pelvis. Again, coming back to the pelvis. So I can get the pelvis neutral as its starting point. Then we have, you know, from a sweet spot, we have room to move in both directions. So you're looking at the pelvis in two different ways of an assessment, but when they get on the bike, it's somewhere in a different position, right? Angular based on where they're, you know, where they're sitting on the bike or obviously you work on their position. So that pre-assessment sets you up to even know that that position is going to be right for a certain subset of saddles. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There's certain, yeah, it's always, I always recommend people if they're coming for a bike fit and you've got multiple saddles and you know, who in the cycling community has not, does not have multiple saddles. Um, I've tried this one. I've tried this one. I've tried this one. Um, 
that you know, I, I encourage people to bring those in. And because a lot of the time I see someone who's been really uncomfortable on a saddle, it's it hasn't actually been the saddle's fault. It's been the position's fault or it's been their function's fault. Because again, it's not about the bike, it's about the person. And a lot of the time we're having to match the function of the person with the with the ability or the fitting window of the bike. And we can, you know, we can dive into it and you can go down this rabbit warren of, you know, if you look at, uh, you know, in the professional peloton, how many people now are dealing with, you know, iliac artery compression from extreme positions, trying to achieve aero and, and really rotating the pelvis forward and having surgery to alleviate those issues. Um, you know, that, that's a whole nother thing, which is popping up now. Well, I was, my understanding is that's, well, in different ways, been going on for a long time, right? Like when when clipless pedals first came out in the '80s, and there was literally no ability or no one knew how to make any major changes to clipless pedals. Guys were getting knee injuries, and they're getting surgery to try to stay in the pro peloton. So now yeah. it's just kind of a different process. Now it's I need to stay in this ultra aggressive and aero position, and I'll get surgeries to make that happen. Well, to alleviate the issue, because yeah, having a compressed iliac artery—that's a major issue from a from a general health standpoint, forget about riding a bike. Cause you know, one of the things we, you know, I think one of the things we, in the, the cycling community from a positional standpoint is we, we just, we've just become obsessed with aero. We've just, cause you know, the advertising campaigns are out there and aero is everything. Aero is everything. If all other things are equal, if we talk about the, the key elements of a bike fit, you've got to be comfortable. You've got to be efficient. You've got to be powerful. Those are not negotiables. You've got to have those elements. And if we can get you aerodynamic, that's the added bonus. Now, there's always an exception to that rule where, you know, if you're on the track, you're doing short durations, you can be really aerodynamic and give up comfort. But I'm not sure whether you want to give up efficiency or, or, or power production. So, you know, there's, there, there is those swings, but we're just, you know, aero is not everything if, if the other elements, the foundational, the fundamental elements of a bike position haven't been taken care of. Right. What's the point in being wildly aerodynamic if literally you're in so much pain you can't stay in that position? Yeah. Well, I look really cool out at the Starbucks or the coffee shop just before we go because, you know. But, yeah, it's, 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 it's your, your function is going to dictate your form. And so, yeah, if you have a high level of function, then we, we have a, a large positioning window for you. But if you have a limited level of functionality, then the positions we can put you on a bike are somewhat limited. And that goes back to the, the bicycle choice, the frame choice, the geometry choice becomes somewhat limited as well. If I had a dollar for every time anybody, everybody's walked in the door with, you know, the latest insert, you know, disc aero <laughs> pro peloton bike, but they don't have the functionality. I'm like, oh, well, how, how often do you ride in the drops? I never ride in the drops. It's super uncomfortable. I'm like, you know, you paid for them. You should be able to use them. So it's that position, you know, every position on the bicycle, you should be able to ride in the drops for extended periods of time. You shouldn't just have to be confined to the hoods and, and the tops. 
Because, you know, when you think about, you know, as a cycling coach and a cycling skills instructor, being in the drops is the safest position you can be on a bike. You're creating a roll cage around you. You know, you can get bumped. Your center of gravity is nice and low. There's all sorts of benefits to it. So, you know, you've got to be able to ride all the positions on the bar. It seems hard, though, in cycling because there is this vanity piece, right? Like with saddles alone, saddles have design, they have colors, but you're not picking for that reason, right? doesn't mean it's going to be comfortable, which would be the same as the bike. The bike could look amazing. Your position could look great for minutes, but there, there is that I want to look a certain way, but it's the antithesis of function. Correct. Absolutely. You know, as I think whichever fashion designer it was, you know, beauty is pain. If you want to look fantastic, it's probably not going to be comfortable. You know, I mean, you know, we're recording this today. The Oscars were last night. I, I swear some of those dresses the ladies were wearing couldn't have been comfortable to sit there for a couple of hours. But the pictures, they won't they won't tell you that, right? So right. that's that's what I like to do. Like, you, you know, you get the picture of me on the bike in the moment when I go by the camera guy on lap one, because that's when you <laughs> want to see me on the bike. You don't want to see me on the bell lap as I'm screaming in pain as my, you know, back is dying. Yeah, I, you know, I mean, you had it with John Cobb, and John John summed it up really great. You know, your position, we can make you super hero, but he's going to sit out there at the 30-mile mark or or the, you know, the 90-mile mark of a, an Ironman triathlon, and then you're going to come back, you know, you're going to come past looking like a monkey humping a football because you can't stay in your hero position anymore because your back's shot and, you know, if your neck's hurting, and, and now you've got to get off and run a marathon. Right. So it's, 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 we've just, you know, we need to make this connection between your function is going to dictate your form. And, and the great thing, you know, people, you know, I, I put people on bikes and I'm like, you know, if you can ride in the drops, if you just want to get lower, just bend your elbows and you'll actually get lower. So it's, it's this whole, you know, we, we need to get past that fashion or that, you know, vanity, you know, and, and it, it, it's just that's human nature more than anything else but yeah you know, we, we've shot off on a tangent again from pelvises <laughs> no it's okay because i i've had this conversation about trying to as we're talking about fit and the importance of fit and you've really gone into a lot of these the complexities of the human body the differences with the individual and yet sometimes it seems like someone will be much more willing to spend four hundred dollars on a one piece set of arrow bars than they would in a fit session for three hours to really figure out, am I wildly losing power or being incredibly inefficient because I'm so unstable? Well, yeah. And I think that's part of the issue with fit as well, because it's so, there's so many nuances to a really, and there's different fits, right? If you just want to come in and be fit, it's why we all offer different products, different levels of you know service. If, if you're doing, you know, low mileage and you just want to make sure you're not injuring, going to injure yourself with a repetitive strain injury, you want to get good biomechanical alignment, then that's a really simple process. But if you're looking at all that and you want a performance element on top of that, that, that takes a lot more work and there's a lot more interplaying parts within that. So here's an example. I just had a, a client last week. Female cyclists, really, you know, local cyclists, really strong, um, former uh, professional stage, former professional stage performer here in Vegas in one of the Cirque du Soleil shows. She's a former synchronized swimmer. 
her she and she is incredibly strong cyclist climbing hills because she can breathe because <laughs> she spent her whole life as a professional athlete learning how not to breathe so she has very good breathing economy um and we just changed crank lengths uh and we went to you know a, a shorter crank than we had been using and so i can position her but you know the the process moving forward is now we've repositioned her she's got to have an adaptation to that position and then really to see you know if we've really got it dialed in i've got to go out in the field with her and i've got to start to look at you know in the in the fit studio i can measure all sorts of things and we all like to measure things but really the amount of time you have in a fit studio to actually go through and and measure stuff longitudinally and that's where it becomes important because you know efficiency is longitudinal we can all you know be efficient for a short period of time it's like you know i love to see bike fit studios where they've got the monitor right in front of the cyclist and they're showing them here's your spin cycle and you want to have this sort of shape yeah if you tell that to the guy he's just going to make it that sort of shape humans are really good at doing that you know, you take all that data away and you don't let the data you know, influence the athlete over a, you know, I'll just pedal for two or three minutes and I'll get a really good idea of how your mechanics work. No, you won't. You know, you, the, the, you've got to, it's out in the field. It's an endurance sport. It's an efficiency sport. Let's go out. Let's put, you know, I'm, I, I have a, you know, a product and, and uh, from the guys at Leomo who, who do IMUs. And I use those IMUs out in the field with certain athletes to actually see, you know, what's happening with their feet, what's happening with their pelvis and how much their pelvis is moving when they're riding. And, you know, what I've learned over the last couple of years using that technology is just how the, much the pelvis shift changes from when somebody's in the drops going into a headwind at, you know, high level wattage, when somebody's sitting up on the tops climbing at, at you know, say tempo or something like that when somebody's sprinting and when you start to look at all that data you get a really good picture of how the position on the bike is actually working for them but you can't do that in a bike fit studio and you certainly can't do it over a period of you know 90 minutes or two hours or two and a half hours or six hours you know because it's it's the the longitudinal data is where it's more valuable otherwise it's just a snapshot Right. That little point where you're there looking at someone potentially in a trainer size cycle isn't showing you the, the changes in terrain, the changes in efforts, the, 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 the micro aggression points on the bike, the movement on the saddle. You, you see you can get more information if you're able to, like you said, get the data from those points. Yeah, and I think that's you know part of the the nuances of every bike fitter that that I know who you know does this as a profession day in day out and is really passionate about what they do. It, it's difficult to monetize that because we want to provide the the customer with the best possible position they can, but you know without you know what are you going to end up paying for a bike fit? You're going to pay me. You know, are people willing to pay me $1,500 for a bike fit, $2,000 for a bike fit? Because it's going to, you know, if we really want to dial it in, it's probably going to be, you know, a couple of sessions in the studio and maybe three or four sessions out on the road. And, you know, from a business standpoint, as a business person, I have to charge for that. And, and you know, you, it's, so that's really, the end. it's a really difficult equation from the business standpoint. But I, and I'm not saying that, you know, we should all, well, we should all put our prices up, but I, I think it's helpful that the consumer understands just how nuanced it can get. 
rather than, well, I went for a bike fit and, you know, this, this guy made me as, as good as I can possibly be. I mean, I guess if a bike fitting was more like what is the accepted practice of physical therapy, you'd be more along those lines, right? Like it wouldn't be longer, but it's, it's you know, when you have an injury, you got to go to physical therapy for six months, uh, an hour a week. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, the, and, and well, uh, uh, part of that topic as well is the issue when you go to physical therapy is if you go to a physical therapist, they have no baseline on you. So they don't even know where you started, where you were prior to your injury. Because if you imagine your injury is the is the end of that cycle, they don't even know what they're trying to get you back to. The great thing that we have with bike fitters is you can sort of come in and we can baseline you because you're 100% functional when you come to see me, right? You're not injured. You came and you walked in, you rolled in with your bike. So when we can baseline you and we can make changes and you know, then move forward. I think that's the benefit, you know, that's the benefit the professionals have. They have people on staff and, and the teams and stuff and the programs that they can sort of go, okay, yeah, we, we, we saw you, you know, at, at team camp in October and we took some data on you and now it's January or February and we're going to, we're going to run the same tests. You know, you've got to have these baselines and we'll see how much you've changed. Well, how's your mobility changed? How's your, you know, your motor control changed? You know, are we going to make position changes on the bike? And I think you'll see that these guys come in, there's a position when they get put on their new bike in October, you know, November, and then early in January and February or March, they can probably go to a little bit more aggressive or they can make some changes. But, you know, into June, July, their body's beat up. They've crashed a couple of times. They put a few thousand kilometers on the bike. Um, you know, the position has to be adjusted as well. And I don't think your everyday consumer um, bike rider, even though they're not putting on that sort of mileage, uh, appreciates that the, those nuanced changes can be made and they will help you. Um, but you know, most people don't, you know, professionals spend all their day on the bike. The rest of us spend all our day at the office or, or doing whatever it is you do for work. Right. And that has an impact on you as well. So if you sit for four or five hours a day, yes, you know, five days a week and you ride your bike, you know, three days a week or two days a week that's going to impact your position on the bike. Your, your, your function will dictate your form. Yeah. As you said. So Greg, I, I really appreciate your time. This is fantastic. I have to hit you with the bonus question. <laughs> so the bonus question is this, okay? I look at a lot of bike fitting sites, go figure. That's, that's what I do, right? Your site specifically, although it says bike fit at the top, your three levels, you talk about rider positioning. Why do you call it rider positioning and not bike fitting? I think because for me, it is about putting the person, the rider in the right position. And it was a way I sort of decided to, you know, distinguish, you know, what I do, which is a little bit different than your average, you know, and I started just like everybody else, right? I started with, okay, we're going to use a plumb bulb and we're going to measure the static angle. And that's really good to get people in the ballpark. But then I, you know, I went down the road of, of learning more and more and more about what's really important to get maximal efficiency and comfort and, and power production, you know, out of riders. And it was, for me, it's just about positioning the rider and that may be on the bike or just changing their normal human you know, physical position, you know, I know a lot of people these days, stand up desks and stuff like that are great things for people to do because, you know, the, 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 
active sitting is is shortening all the anterior line and those are sort of the same those are issues which will impact you on the bike um so yeah the the rider positioning became my sort of thing it's i think it was a better description of what it was that i did um because you know the number of people i've had who have come to me i tend to be one of those people who people come to when they've been to other people and have had their problems solved or been 100 percent satisfied you know i get all the problem children and um, i think I, I think that's the people i look for for the show yeah <laughs> <laughs> the solvers i like yeah we sort of go through and you're like oh that's really really interesting and 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 you know i'm i'm certainly not i i don't subscribe to any particular system or or school of because for me it's i think that's part of the problem in the bike fit you know industry is that it's we've become so specific that it's you know this is because cycling is you know we're all snowflakes you know we're so specific no we're, we're part of a human race and we all move very very similarly and there's more i think we have more in common than we have you know things that are different for us and we need to look for those commonalities and create baselines and you know as i've said the pelvis is my thing and um if i i know if i get the pelvis right a lot of the other pieces are going to start to fall into place and I'm, it's just going to give me a way better starting point a way better foundation to create a, a, a better writing position for somebody that's right on target greg thank you so much for spending the afternoon with me i really appreciate your time thank you damon and i uh, really appreciate everything you do i think this is a great resource for both the consumers and the professionals out there who are you know making bike fit their lifelong journey it was amazing to dig deep into greg's mind and philosophy on fit he really is connected to this function and form idea i want to thank him profusely for taking so much time to share with us on the pod if you're interested in contacting Greg or would like to follow up with some cool questions, I'll include his contact information on our podcast site where you can join the conversation, add comments, and check out all the previous episodes. Just head over to blog.bikefit.com forward slash podcast. That's blog.bikefit.com forward slash podcast. You can also contact us via the BikeFit hotline at 855-813-3233 or via email podcast at bikefit.com podcast listeners we know this is an extremely difficult time for all of us and we're thinking of you and supporting you in this tough time bikefit will remain open which means we'll be shipping out products from the warehouse consulting answering phones anything you need if anything changes in that regard we will definitely let you know via our social media uh, email or the podcast Our podcast and resources are meant to not only expand your mind and help you enjoy cycling more, but also to act as some solace during a time of significant turbulence and unrest. Don't forget to follow us or subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. In two weeks, we will provide you with another amazing guest to expand your mind in the world of bike fitting. Until then, stay safe, get bike fit, and be merry. Have a great week.